Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Venezuela's dictator Nicolas Maduro appears stronger than ever. What can the opposition really achieve in a new round of negotiations? We have seen a very fragmented opposition. So what it can negotiate is actually liberalizing reforms, even if they're gradual. So getting maybe some party brands back, party tickets, the release of political prisoners, the return of exiles. And it can also um, focus on the humanitarian aspect of it. There are certain rituals we're accustomed to in this life. Every four years we have the Olympics, at least usually, and every so often we also see negotiations between the Venezuelan dictatorship and the opposition. This time around, perhaps even more than others, the government of Nicolas Maduro appears to have the upper hand. Maduro is not popular, but neither is the opposition, really. Juan Guaido's claim to be Venezuela's true president, very few parties really believe that's true, at least in practice anymore. And the regional consensus that had formed against Maduro in recent years is also breaking down. After all, Lima recently dropped out of the Lima group, which is to say the new government of Pedro Castillo in Peru left the group of nations that had united to at least put some pressure on the dictatorship in Caracas. And while Maduro's government does have some motivation to cede ground in these upcoming talks, the economic crisis is terrible, so is the outbreak of COVID, they really do appear to be in a position of strength. So as we look forward to these negotiations, which will happen in Mexico, I have lots of questions. Uh, What's really on the negotiating table? Can we expect any change, any improvement in conditions for life on the ground for everyday Venezuelans? And ultimately, is Maduro really going anywhere? Color me skeptical. (laughs) But here to discuss this latest round of negotiations is Venezuelan political scientist, Dr. Marianne Jimenez Morales. Marianne is a postdoctoral research associate at the Latin American Center at the University of Oxford and an expert in opposition politics and autocracies. Marianne, thank you for joining us on the AQ podcast. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for the invitation. Happy to be on on this podcast. Well, thank you. So this is the big story, Marianne. And, and, you know, to start, can you tell us how we got here? I mean, how we got to yet another round of negotiations and and why this time will be different from the previous occasions? Well, that's obviously a very difficult question to answer. We got here after as you explained, after sort of more maximalist opposition strategy that was initiated in 2019 with the establishment of the interim government led by Juan Guaido and widely supported, as you said, by countries in the region, but also European Union and the US. And basically, a few years later, after having been defeated, let's say, on that strategy to pursue regime change, Maduro has the upper hand, as you say, and he's now in a better position to negotiate even less, right, on a negotiating table with the Venezuelan opposition. That's obviously very sad for for the country or the population, let's say, and this is a classical example of where you see where elites' interests and incentives are and where basically the rest of the population is right in terms of vital incentives to actually even stay alive. As we know, the access to vaccine is very limited in Venezuela, but also the humanitarian crisis is worsening 
even though there is a very small, small, small economic recovery. And I mentioned that because obviously what Maduro is going to want, as he's already said, and the coalition around him, is to ease sanctions so that he can, let's say, not really improve the economy because there isn't really the capacity for that under the current political regime. But even if the economy recovers a bit, either Chavismo is in a better place to win again the elections, or even he himself will run again for another presidential term. So just to be clear, and this can be a simple yes, no, is there any chance that these negotiations result in Maduro agreeing to leave power? I don't think so. I don't think that in the short term, the negotiation is about Maduro's exit. It's on the contrary. I think that he's going to want to stay in power after having survived probably this three years of high internal pressure, not through mobilization, right, but through the establishment of that interim government and high pressure, as we know from the narrative from the past U.S. administration, but also in terms of sanctions. So I think what he's going to want is to stay in power for the rest of his presidential term, whether that's illegitimate or not, that's obviously a different one. But we're talking real politics here. So I think he's going to want to stay in power and try and see whether he can give some liberalization in return for for sanctions and some recognition. So if you're the opposition, then what is the point of all of this? And I ask that because, you know, typically, and I I referenced in my introduction, just the regular, almost Groundhog Day-like nature of these talks. And it has mostly seemed in the past to just be kind of a cynical exercise by Maduro to give the appearance of being reasonable and try to extract some concessions from uh, not only from the domestic opposition, but as you referenced from the international community in terms of these sanctions. Okay, so it's clear to me why Maduro wants to do this. Why does the opposition want to do this? Why bother? What are they trying to get? Right. I mean, first, let me say, I hope I'm wrong. Right? I hope I'm wrong. And, and maybe there is another fate for Venezuela in, in the short term. But I'm skeptical because like I said, the opposition has incurred into really big mistakes over not just the last three years, but it's more a policy of maximalists sort of looking for a rupture rather than reform. And we've seen these cleavages within the opposition actually already now for the past almost, let's say, two decades, right? And I mentioned this because you're asking me what's the point of going to these negotiations in the short term. What I'm trying to say is that it's a little more complicated than that because you have accumulated a series of mistakes. Basically, opposition didn't really, A, didn't work on the grassroots sort of linkages to the population, so didn't look to strengthen their internal capacities to mobilize, to organize, and to create that immediate internal threat. On the one hand, but also on an elite level, it really is more fragmented today than it was back in the days. Remember the landslide victory in 2015, where all of that happened under the umbrella organization called La Mesa Democrática. So basically, after the collapse of that coalition in 2015, towards the end of the year, we have seen a very fragmented opposition along also strategic lines. So you have one that believes that accumulating power through organization and participation And then we have another part of the opposition that doesn't recognize Maduro, doesn't recognize uh, Chavismo, doesn't recognize its relative strengths. And so it's looking forward to either foreign and post-democratization or through the international pressure that Maduro will concede, not only power, but maybe even 
giving up on politics altogether, which I don't think it's it's going to happen. And so when you have these different cleavages within the opposition camp, you're already in a weaker position at the time of negotiating, right? So obviously autocrats, they have an easier time because they know if they if they split, they're going to be worse off. What you're telling me makes me want to pull my hair out. I mean, what remains of my hair? Anyway, I mean, this is, we've been reading about this Venezuelan opposition being divided forever. Here we are again. I mean, it makes me question whether anything constructive can come out of these talks. So if if it's not Maduro's departure that's on the table, and you argue in your latest piece for America's Quarterly that it's not on the table, what specifically is the opposition trying to get out of this? I mean, I, I also read an interesting piece on, on Efecto Cocuyo that said that maybe some sort of release of political prisoners, return of political exiles, a reduction in the persecution against dissidents. I mean, are these the things that are that are potentially on the table? Yeah, there could be. But again, what I'm trying to convey is that the interests of the interim government are are probably not going to be met anyway. What this opposition around Juanuelo, what they want is an electoral route towards a presidential election, which can help sort of solve this conflict between the parallel interim government and Maduro's illegitimate presidential term or even future. So what it can negotiate is actually liberalizing reforms, even if they're gradual. On the sorry, on the economic side or in terms of the electoral process? Yeah, in political terms. So what you just mentioned, right? So getting maybe some party brands back, party tickets, the release of political prisoners, the return of exiles. We've seen that in many other contexts as well, not just in Latin American democratization stories, but uh, also internationally. And it can also um, focus on the humanitarian aspect of it, right? So so it needs really to improve um, the access to vaccine, the access to, to humanitarian assistance, so that better living conditions for Venezuelans can actually also promote in the future maybe mobilization and organization, which they're going to benefit. Right. So Marianne, there are elections scheduled for November. These, of course, are not presidential elections. They're regional elections. Can you just briefly tell us what these are and maybe what they're not and how they might change the political landscape, if at all? Sure. I mean, these are not democratizing elections. These are regional offices. So governors and mayors, right? So these aren't any groundbreaking elections that will bring any immediate change. But what they are is a possibility to create some collective action on the ground to bring a little bit more dynamics into the coalitions within the opposition. It could mean the emergence of new opposition leadership, or it could even mean the emergence of new alliances on the ground between more moderate actors that believe that contesting elections is the possibility of at least showing the discontent and showing the cracks within the structures of the ruling coalition. And it could also mean an opportunity to mobilize and knock on people's doors again and bring some hope to Venezuelans. What do we know, Marianne, about conditions on the ground? I mean, I, I know that you're in England. Of course, I'm recording this from suburban New York, where I've been stranded for the better part of 18 months now, for the most part. And I always, when we talk about Venezuela, I always hate to admit this, but I will confess to a certain amount of fatigue, unfortunately, in terms of you know following Venezuela on a day-to-day basis, just because it, it seems to get worse and worse. But what over the last six months or so, for the for most people there on the ground in in Venezuela, what has changed? 
Well, I mean, what has changed is, I guess, the dollarization no, of, of the economy, basically, and an increasing, increasing inequality, which is very worrying. And as we know from some of the literature, that can also have an impact on on processes of change. The demographics of people uh, continue to leave the country. We have seen some major cracks, uh, even more so in state capacity, or should we rather say state fragility, right? So we've seen what's happening not only at the border, but also in Caracas. So there is um, an increase in violence as well. Uh, as we've seen, Chavismo is not able really, not only to s- provide public goods, as we know, but also to maintain you know, control over the territories. And that's why it's really urgent that maybe um, factors like these are part of a negotiation. So not just focusing on the institutional sort of immediate um, changes that can be done, but also how can um, opposition and, and the regime, even though this might sound counterintuitive, right? Because we know who's responsible for all of this, but it, there are some elements in the interest of both sides to come to an agreement. Let's say, for example, the state capacity and how maybe international actors can help mitigate further fragility. I'm, I'm sorry, just to interrupt you for a second. When you talk about mitigating further fragility, what, what exactly do you mean? For example, maybe the UN can can provide some assistance uh, on the border, or in, so maybe there there you know we haven't talked about an actor, and I'm not an expert on the military, but it seems that also there the Venezuelan opposition and also the government can come can think about what they can negotiate in terms of political and economic incentives to to provide an institutionalization or reinstitutionalization of the military and how to dismantle also maybe uh, some of the very repressive coercive apparatus that has been built under Chavismo. Why would Maduro do that, though? <laughs> well, in the short term, maybe there is no incentives, for, no incentives for that. But I don't think it's in Maduro's interest to continue that sort of fragility that is current in place. It doesn't make them look good. Well, let's talk a little bit about the military for a second here. I mean, it's been a busy few months for them. The big story has been the escalating conflict with the Colombian rebel groups that have been residing in Apure State for for years. And you know, since late March, these clashes between the Venezuelan military and and the rebel groups they've historically tolerated have left dozens dead, displaced more than six thousand Venezuelans, mostly across the border to Colombia. I mean, as you just noted, Marianne, this this doesn't look or feel like stability. So what, I mean, how does that, how does all that have an impact on these talks in Mexico, if at all? Well, I think this is a very relevant point, And I think that there might be some room for future negotiations on this topic. It might not be on the table right now for the upcoming weeks or months. We don't know how long these negotiations are going to take place. But it is a topic where I think even for an incoming opposition or let's say a more plural government in the future, there there might be some room for the opposition with the Maduro government to deal on the state capacity issues because there is no interest, I don't think, for any of these actors to really lose control to other groups. Marianne, we've talked at some length about Juan Guaido, and of course, he's clearly important still. Uh, His representatives have just finished trips to D.C., uh, Brussels, and Madrid seeking support for their so-called plan of national salvation. But I think it's also safe to say, based on polling that I've seen, that this momentum that he had, not only in terms of trying to force a regime change in Caracas, but also in terms of his popularity on the ground among Venezuelans, has diminished over the last 
two years or so. Who else is important in the Venezuelan opposition right now? I mean, is there anybody who is competing with Guaido for the mantle of sort of the most important face behind the scenes or the most publicly visible face? You know, I, I hear talk every now and then of Enrique Cabriles, of course, of Leopoldo Lopez as well. I mean, what else can you tell us about the dynamics within the opposition itself? Right. So we have uh, spoken a bit about the divisions and, and, and this topic is almost always on the headlines, right? So why is the Venezuelan opposition so divided? We've talked about how these divisions are also along strategic lines. And we have seen these divisions over the past year. No? Let's say you mentioned Enrique Capriles, with also Stalin Gonzalez, who have criticized, you know, let's say uh, the diminishing of the building uh, domestic capacities to, to resist and seek that change internally, whereas you have a more voluntad uh, popular sort of approach, which focuses more on, on foreign and post-democratization, or at least more an international dimension to the solution of the conflict. And then you have other sectors like Maria Corina, who's very popular because, well, among certain, you know, sectors of the Venezuelan population, but also in the diaspora mostly, because she's, you know, not willing to coexist, as she says, with Chavismo. And then you have another group of actors, I would say these are sort of more maximalist actors and or spoilers. And then you have uh, minimalist actors that are now part of the of the new National Assembly. I think a large part of, of those actors are most likely co-opted. So obviously, when you see the spectrum, it's very difficult to bring them together because they have very different visions about how to solve the conflict or even about how to coexist in a future political system. And it's obviously very hard to imagine that at the moment. And I think actually, when you look at also what's happening within the ruling coalition, it's ex- really interesting to see that there are important internal disagreements. For example, the Partido Comunista has also also left Maduro and on the ground have seen significant cracks. So I am not sure that Pesu will be able to remain as cohesive as it believes it is or whether we're going to see, you know, the emergence of new oppositions coming from the ruling coalition itself. Why did the Communist Party abandon Maduro? I mean, was he was he not hardline enough for them? I'm sorry to laugh, but it just sounds funny. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that was more the case. It's I think it's an ideological terms. They believe he's more of a neoliberal president than really true to the socialists, you know, ideas of of the origins of Chavismo. My mouth is gaping wide open right now. Yeah. So those are the contradictions of the conflict. And as you see, there is not only high fragmentation, but also new oppositions to Chavismo that come from within, which are actually really interesting to observe, I would say. What's your sense, Marianne, of how the world will react to these conversations? I mean, The dynamic, of course, has become very confused, let's say, just because of what happened with the attempt to recognize Guaido back in 2019. And look, I mean, Guaido is still recognized by more than 60 countries, um, plus the EU and the OAS, the Organization of American States, as the legitimate leader of Venezuela. But of course, everybody also recognizes that in practice, it's Maduro and his cohort that have control of the country. It's very clear that Maduro is playing here, you know, he's trying to look reasonable so that some of these U.S. sanctions in particular can be eased. I mean, what's your sense of how the world and maybe in particular the Biden administration might react to these conversations? What will they be watching for? Well, I think that the fatigue that you talked about earlier is across actors, right? So not just on, on our side, but also internationally. 
I think it's very clear that the sort of extreme strategy that was once widely supported with the interim government didn't work. And so now you can't roll back, obviously, on it, right? There, there are some implications also for the European Union and for the U.S., but I think that at least the shift towards a more realistic U.S. policy towards Venezuela is, is important. Because let's face it, the power that the opposition brings to Mexico lies actually in Washington and in Washington's understanding of the conflict and sort of how they understand in the mid and long run how, how this can unfold. I think that at least the shift towards reconsidering the sanction regime is important. Otherwise, Maduro wouldn't even be joining, uh, I don't think, this Mexico negotiations, right? And then maybe there is also a shift within the international community that Maduro has been underestimated, right? So the alliances that, that they have and the capacity they have shown to adapt, obviously, at a very high expense for the population, that has been widely underestimated. This strategy would only have worked out, let's face it, if it was going to work within several weeks or, or a couple of months, but not, not this long. And so I think that this international fatigue, while it shouldn't really benefit uh, Maduro, it, it does. So, you know, one of the aims that Maduro has is that all sanctions will be lifted immediately. I don't think that that should happen <laughs> under any circumstances. But I think that if Maduro and the PSUV wants to, let's say, build a political system in which they can be part of with, you know, let's say some guarantees uh, and rights, they need to show commitment to such a process. And so if they want sanctions to be lifted, those should be conditioned to really serious liberalizing reforms like the ones that we talked about earlier. So civil and political human rights, but also more broadly, guaranteeing not only those rights, but also the access to all the other rights like social, economic and cultural and environmental rights. My sense, Marianne, is that the bar for Washington to budge is going to be very high, meaning that the Biden administration would really have to see major concessions by Maduro in order to consider movement on the sanctions front, because they really, across the board in terms of dealing with these dictatorships in Latin America, have shown themselves much less pliant than some people expected. They have arguably been tougher on Cuba in many ways than even the Trump administration was. They have so far been very skeptical, I think is a polite word, of some of these early attempts by Maduro to, again, appear reasonable or more moderate and an obvious attempt to extract concessions. I think in part because they know the game that these regimes play. It's a playbook that's been well-established over time. And, and also, let's be honest, there's a very important element of domestic U.S. politics. If Biden or the Democratic candidate wants to win Florida in 2022, you'd better be damn sure that if you're going to make any concessions to these you know, socialist communist dictatorships, that it's worth it. I'm not sure I see them moving at all, unless there was some sort of major concession. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm, what I'm trying to convey is that, in, at least in, in narrative, they have toned down, you know, the, the aggressiveness uh, in comparison to a prior administration. 
which could be, let's say, attractive to Maduro. But in real life, let's say, Maduro would have to bring some considerable concessions to expect the U.S. government to lift any sanctions. And I'm not sure we're going to see that in the very short term, as you said. The midterms are very important for the Democrats as well. And so those sanctions would only be lifted if, two major if, I think, if Maduro makes some big concessions and if those are either on the table prior to the midterms uh, or after. So Marianne, let's shift to the takeaway here, to the conclusion. I mean, if you and I come back on this podcast a year from now and we look back at these conversations, are we more likely to say, hmm, okay, this actually produced a little more than we thought. Okay, it didn't result in Maduro's short-term departure from power, but at least there were some concessions that made political life in Venezuela a little more pluralistic, that may have eased conditions for Venezuelans on the ground. That's like scenario A. Or is it closer to scenario B, where we say, oh man, this was just a really cynical attempt by Maduro to, you know, take advantage of the new administration in Washington, the weakness of Guaido, and nothing changed. Which do you think will be closer to the truth, scenario A or B? I want to say hopefully it will be A, but I'm not sure it will be A. I hope come back on this podcast in a year's time, we'll say, listen, we were very critical and skeptical and actually the US, Norway, and the opposition leveraged this better and Maduro actually decided to give some liberalizations because that would have worked out better for him and his ruling coalition in terms of the mid and long term because it would have enabled him to build a system in which they can yeah be part of a, a democracy without being authoritarian but that sounds a bit like a wishful thinking doesn't it no a bit. <laughs> it's, so it's possible that it will be B. I sincerely hope that it isn't because it's really a dire situation on the ground and the people really need an answer from from Maduro, really. Um, so he needs to decide where he wants to go. But having said that, I think it's really important for the opposition to learn from their mistakes. And that's also going to be difficult so long the entering government is in place, I believe, because it has shifted. Um, it has shifted the incentives, at least for, for the, the elites around it, to maintain this, this stalemate, right? So we'll see what happens. We'll see whether the November elections can help bring some new dynamics on the ground. I know it's, it's critical and it's not going to be a democratizing election, but it could at least provide the opportunity to, you know, get people going on the ground, to reestablish the connection to the bases and showing some, some, some hope. I think that that's also really important, right? Because so long that the Venezuelan population don't have a real alternative to believe in, they'll also just try and seek to adapt. And that's only normal. People are looking to survive on a daily basis. And, and to change that scheme, you do need activists on the ground who promote that sort of collective action. I will hope springs eternal. Marianne, thank you so much for joining us on the AQ Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please give us a review, leave us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Gabrielle Cohen. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society 
and the Council of the Americas.